All right. So I guess there's probably many of you, many that are traveling today. We have a few visitors with us. Uh, glad to see you. And uh, if you are visiting with us, we're doing a study on baptism, which we read about in the scripture. This is kind of a special study, and and maybe maybe you're saying, oh, I know about baptism. You know, I've been studying that my whole life. Well. There's lots of things that we can still learn and try to rem and, and perhaps refresh our memory a little bit around baptism. And we've been looking at it, what it means, what it is, what's the big deal about it, and whether or not it is essential to a Christian being saved to salvation. Is it part of God's plan to save humankind or uh, to save us? And we looked at the teachings of the apostles early on in Acts, and we saw how every single conversion in Acts that takes place, there's a baptism with it. A baptism that occurred not a week later, not a month later, right away. In fact, if you remember the Philippian jailer, that was in the middle of the night, and they were baptized immediately. And by the way, if that's something that happens here, we're going to do the same. And we also saw the teachings of, about baptism in the letters of Peter and Paul and uh, how the importance, the importance of baptism and, and their teachings and their letters and their writings and how these things played out in the lives of those who received their letters. We also looked at some objections that people make to the essentiality of baptism, whether it's really needed uh, for salvation, whether it's something that we have to do. And we looked at probably the most prominent um, Objection, and that was the thief on the cross, and how the thief on the cross was saved, and Jesus saved him without baptism. And we talked about how the fact that, that that's true, he was saved, but it's really not relevant to the case here, right? In fact, they were still under the old law. The old law said, you know, uh, under the old law, these people were not required or not commanded to be baptized, like we see in Matthew 28. At, uh, when Jesus told the disciples to go out into all the world, preaching uh, the gospel to every nation, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. In fact, we even said, well, you know, if you're going to say, well, what about the thief on the cross? And you, gotta, you might as well say, what about Moses? What about David? What about Noah? They were all in the same situation as the thief on the cross. They were all under the old law, right? Well, maybe Noah was previous to the law, but same thing, right? Then we had the objection that some will say, well, Cornelius' household received the Spirit before they were baptized. But we talked about that and how Peter saw the vision. Remember the vision of the unclean food and God saying, you know, what I have created, what I have told you to do, go eat. And he was saying to Peter, the gospel is not just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles as well. And when they went to see Cornelius, he had been told to seek out Peter, who will bring him words by which he will be saved. And how the Spirit fell on Cornelius and his household at the beginning, as Peter recounted that in Acts 11, as he's at the council in Jerusalem, describing what had happened and describing to the Jews that God had meant for the gospel to be for all. It's kind of crazy, right, that we can read in Acts 2.38, or Acts 2, when Peter's making his sermon, and how God said from the prophet Joel that he was going to pour out his spirit on all men, but yet the disciples, the apostles, still didn't quite get that yet. Still didn't fully understand that the gospel was meant for everyone, not just the Jews. 
And so when Cornelius and his household received the Spirit and began to speak in tongues and doing wonders, it was really for Peter and his, his benefit and for the folks that had come with him to see that God was no respecter of persons. The gospel was there for all. And in fact, Peter said, as I began to speak, he had not even preached the words yet by which they would be saved, the Spirit fell on him. And so we can see from these verses, if we really do an in-depth study of it, it wasn't the Spirit falling on them that saved them. It was hearing about the gospel and their obedience to it and their response to that gospel and being baptized. And then we saw in 1 Corinthians how Paul was talking about the divisions among those brethren at Corinth. And he said something kind of odd. He said, you know, I came to preach. I was sent to preach, not to baptize. And you'll hear that perhaps from someone who doesn't believe it's a center, all right? They'll say, well, that, why would Paul say that? If it, you know, it doesn't sound like he's making it very important. It must not have been that important to Paul. And yet we read through all his letters how important it was. But then you have to look at the context of what's going on there, right? how there were divisions among those, how there were people saying, I am of Peter, I am of Apollos, I am of Paul, assigning themselves, separating themselves according to who had baptized them. And Paul is trying to rebuke that. He's trying to tell them that it is not about us. I didn't come here to baptize you. I don't want you to divide over my somebody baptized. In fact, he even said, I'm glad I didn't baptize many of you. It wasn't so much who baptized you, it's about Jesus Christ, the gospel, the gospel that he was sent to preach. And so we saw the context, that's not what he means at all. Baptism is important, but he was stating to these folks that you can't divide over who baptized you. It was a whole different thing. And then, of course, we talked about Holy Spirit baptism. Many will say, well, Romans 6 and other things are talking about Holy Spirit baptism because they say they're baptized into Christ instead of the name of Christ and so forth. And we talked about how that's not the point at all. And how Romans 6 refers to the act. You're buried with him in baptism, crucified with him, raised to newness of life. So these things don't mix with the Holy Spirit baptism, which nobody actually sees or does. In fact, we could pretty much say that outwardly, we've only seen that happen twice on the day of Pentecost and on Cornelius' household. So we have seen several objections, talked about or looked at the scripture to try to say, is that true? Are what they saying true? And we kind of were able to say, no. We were able to rebuke that, refute it. Well, today we're going to take a little bit of a turn on the idea of baptism. We're not going to look so much as at objections, because we've seen now that the preaching and the teaching of the apostles pretty much proved that baptism is essential, that it has to be done, and that it's not a work, right? It's not a work of merit. After all, we know there's nothing we can do to be saved. God's done it for us. God, through his love for us, through his grace and mercy, has provided a way for us to spend eternity with him. One sin, just one sin, and you're dead. There's nothing you can do. We've talked about that. But we talked about how baptism is a thing done, right? But it's not a work of merit. It's not something I'm doing to earn salvation. In fact, we're just being dumped. It's the work of God, the work of the Spirit that's going on there. That's really the work that's being done there. In fact, we even talked about you've got to repent, right? You've got to confess his name. We read scriptures talking about that. 
In fact, baptism really is the most passive thing you can do in the plan of salvation, right? You don't really have to make much effort other than just, just get in the water. So it's interesting how people will use that to say it's a work and you're not saved by works. We see from the teachings, Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized, Acts 2, 38, repent and be baptized, Acts 22, 16, arise and be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord, and how it is commanded for disciples to become Christians, Matthew 28, go out into all the world, making some of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. So we see the essentiality of baptism, but there's some other things that still go on in the world, in Christendom perhaps, right, that are still a little different when it comes to baptism, right? For instance, when someone is baptized here, we take them to the water and we immerse them. We dunk them. We plunge them. We dip them. We put them under. And then we raise them up to newness of life. But there are some who don't do that, right? There are some who might pour water over someone, or there are some who just sprinkle people with water. Okay, so there's different kinds of what people might say is baptism, different kinds of ways people might say is baptism, right? This, this subject's something I'll, we want to talk about today, but it's one of those subjects that I've always thought, what's the big deal? Why doesn't everybody just immerse, right? Why doesn't everybody just do it the way we do it? What's the big deal? I've always wondered kind of why that is. There's another question, too. There are many who baptize babies, right? Infants. Should they be baptized? And another question that we're not going to look at today, but is there ever a reason for someone to be re-baptized? Baptized again. And we'll look at that in a couple of weeks. Today we're going to look at the first of these questions. Sprinkling pouring or immersion. Does it matter? Is it one or the other? Are they all the same? Do we care? Hmm. Well, we're going to talk about it whether you care or not today, okay? And we're going to look at a few things as to why we believe here that you need to be immersed. Why is that the way we do it? The Greek words for baptize and baptism uh, come from the Greek words baptizo and baptisma, right? And you can note that those words are not actually translations of the Greek words. Did you know that? You know, we, we read about, we talk all the time about how the, well, we don't talk all the time, but if you ever study church history, you look into the Bible, how it was written, how it was translated over the years, right? You have the different versions today, the King James, American Standard, the English Standard, New American Standard, New King James, all these different versions. And if you ever looked at why we have all this and how things are translated, you may never come across the fact that the word baptism was not actually translated. Well, what do I mean by that? Maybe some of you have heard that, maybe you don't really understand what that means. You see, they are words that were actually transliterated. And there's a difference. A translation means you take a word in the language that we speak in English, and in this sentence from Greek, that means pretty much the same thing as the Greek word, or, or at least as close as we can get it to the Greek word. And for 
99.99% of the scripture, that's how it's been done. Those who translated the Greek and the Hebrew from the Old Testament tried to get English words that were same meaning or as close to the same meaning as possible. But that's not the case with the word baptized. The word baptizo, these are transliterated words, meaning they are simply English versions of the Greek word, not so much the same definition. In other words, they're taking the English letters, I'm taking the Greek word and changing the word simply so it has an English sounding uh, pronouncement. English, using English letters. Rather than baptizo, we say baptize. Rather than baptisma, we say baptism. And it's really the Greek word. So when you say baptize, you're speaking Greek. Did you know that? Me either. Doesn't really matter. It's interesting how there is a definition, though, for the word baptize from the Greek that perhaps we don't know about. In your outline, I'm just going to read these real quick. The out, Brother Coburn here talks about there are several Greek to English lexicons that he uses, and there are apparently uh, valid, valid books, valid tra- lexicons that you can use to translate the Greek. One's the Greek English, Thayer's Greek English lexicon. Of course, you've heard of Thayer's there, uh, you know, many times. Greek English lexicon, Liddell and Scott, the seventh edition. There's a Greek lexicon of the Roman and Byzantine periods from Sophocles. It's a bibliotheological lexicon of New Testament words. And to quote, he, he also quotes Vine's Expeditionary Dictionary of New Testament words saying, baptism consisting of the process of immersion, submersion, and emergence. So what he's saying here is, in the Greek, we have to look at what baptism means, what that word meant. It's interesting if you go back to those lexicons and you'll see the word in Greek means to immerse, to plunge or to dip. It's not sprinkle or pour or anything like that. In fact, in the Greek, there are completely different words for those words. Pouring, you have something called a chino or kino, and sprinkling, you have reino. Makes sense, right? I'm gonna next time it's raining, I'm gonna go uh, say, "Hey, it's reino one outside. It's pouring, or sprinkling, actually." Yeah, there are different words in the Greek for this. So why is it we have baptized in our Bibles? Well, it's because it matches the Greek word baptizo, which means to immerse. It's important to keep in mind that. Considering these verses as they're simply transliterations, <clears throat> they were transliterated for a reason. Any idea what that might have been? Why was that word transliterated? Anybody know the history there a little bit? What's the book that we know, what's the, the oldest translation that we know of, which we still use today? King James, right? King James Bible was transliterated Translated uh, approximately around 1610, 1611. King James I of England. Uh, requ- requisitioned it, whatever you call it. But there was politics involved. Just like in everything we do, right? There's always politics. And there was the idea to use the word baptize rather than immerse to not offend those who poured and sprinkled. Did you know that? 
Interesting, right? So even in our Bibles and our translations, we get a little political with some things, right? And you say, well, wait, well, this is inspired of God. Of course it is. And baptize is a word that we can understand and we can read and we can talk about. But in the Greek, it meant to immerse. But that wasn't why they used that word. In fact, if you go back and read Acts 2.38, it should read, repent and be immersed for the remission of sins. Or Mark 16, everyone who believes and is immersed will be saved. Or Acts 22.16, arise and be immersed, washing away your sins. <clears throat> so, what is the big deal about this? What, what is true today and why do we care? Well, these definitions, if you go look in an English dictionary, will say to immerse, to sprinkle, to pour. Because that's what's done today when you hear the word baptized, right? Many different denominations do things differently, and you'll still see that today. To know exactly what was meant by Jesus and his apostles, how do we, can, how do we know that? We have to consult authorities that were written or around the time when these words were used. And of course, I've already mentioned these Greek lexicons that talk about some of that. And we need to see how the words were actually defined in New Testament times when the writers were writing these letters. And we need to look at how it's described, right? All right, we've been, we've been in this chapter many times. Let's go back over to Romans 6 and read a few verses again. And I know... You know the verses, but we're going to read them again just to look at how things get described. Beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. For we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certain we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. See, here we have the description of what baptism is. What's going on there? We're being crucified. The old self is being buried. Now, if I get sprinkled with water, is that a burial? I don't see too many dead people laying around being sprinkled. It makes perfect sense, does it not? be immersed, buried into the heart of the earth, into that water, just like Jesus was buried in the earth. Colossians 2.12 talks about being buried with him as well. So which action is it? Which action is the burial? Which action is the likeness of his death? Which action is the likeness of his resurrection? When you're sprinkled, are you raised again afterward? When it's just poured on you, are you raised again afterward? No. It makes perfect sense. Immersed, buried with him, raised just like Jesus was raised by God. Raised to newness of life. 
Only immersion followed by that emergence fit Paul's description here. Paul's use of these figures of speech makes no sense if baptism was either a pouring or sprinkling. Now, you're, you're, you're smart people in here, right? Everybody in here is above average, right? That's pretty easy to see, right? Pretty easy to understand. Well, so why do people do it the other way? Why is it done the other way? Makes no sense, right? Well, I'm going to read some things from your outline again. Uh, Brother Copeland put in here some, some comments made from the denominational world. Testimony of many scholars, and I'm just going to read through these. You can read them if you've got your outline. If not, that's fine. Just listen in. But here are some comments from Episcopalians on practice of baptism, whether it's pouring or sprinkling. Uh, this is from Coney Barron House in the Life and Epistles of St. Paul. The passage in Romans 6, 4 cannot be understood unless it be borne in mind that the primitive baptism was by immersion. Another one, Episcopalian, Cunningham, the growth of the church. Baptism means immersion, and it was immersion. Unless it had been so, Paul's analogical argument about our being buried with Christ in baptism would have had, had no meaning. Nothing could have been simpler than baptism in its first form. When a convert declared his faith in Christ, he was taken at once to the nearest pool or stream of water and plunged into it. And henceforward, he was recognized as one of the Christian community. Bishop Lightfoot, you might have heard that name. His commentary says, Baptism is the grave of the old man and the birth of the new. As he sinks beneath the baptism waters, the believer buries there all his corrupt affections and past sins. As he emerges, thence he rises, regenerate, quickened to new hopes and a new life. This baptism is an image of his participation both in the death and resurrection of Christ, just like Paul describes. Methodist version. Adam Clark's commentary, many of you have one of these. Alluding to the immersion practice in the case of adults wherein the person appeared to be buried under the water as Christ was buried in the heart of the earth, his rising again the third day and their emerging from the water was an emblem of the resurrection of the body. And here's one from John Wesley himself, who the Methodist church is attributed being started from. You'll bear buried with him, alluding to the ancient manner of baptizing by immersion. Lutheran versions. The sacrament of baptism was administered in this century, the first throughout the public assemblies and places appointed and prepared for that purpose and was performed by an immersion of the whole body in the baptismal font. That's Moshem, Moshem's church history. Here's one from Tholuck, Commentary on Romans, for the explanation of the figurative description of the baptismal rite. And notice how he says that, rite, baptismal rite. It is necessary to call attention to the well-known circumstance that in the early days of the church, persons when baptized were first plunged below and then raised above the water. Now here's one that's Catholic. Brenner, for 1,300 years, was baptism and immersion of the person underwater. Now wouldn't you think if that was the way it was done for 1,300 years, it needs to continue for the next 1,300 years and the next 1,300 years until the Lord comes again? Why did that change? Well, you have some comments here, and it's interesting. These are denominational commentaries, uh, speakers, what have you, who tell you that it's immersion. It should be immersion, right? Why don't they practice it then? Why don't they do what they say? Ever heard that one before? Why don't they practice immersion? Since these scholars, you know, affirm the immersion is only form of baptism taught in the Bible, are they to be considered dishonest? 
or insincere because of the practice of sprinkling or pouring. We know they do. Well, let's look at that for a minute. Not necessarily. Uh, rather, they have fallen into a fallacy, right? They can be very sincere, but be very wrong, right? Well, we can too, of course. But let's just look at a couple of verses. Turn over to Matthew 15 there. And let's see a warning or something that Jesus says about this. Matthew 15. And let's begin in verse 1. <clears throat> then the scribes and Pharisees, and when you hear that, you know something bad's about to be talked about or happen, right? Then the scribes and Pharisees, who were from Jerusalem, came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Notice what they said there, tradition of the elders. For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Just turned it around on them. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother, because that's what they were doing. You give gifts to the church in honor of your mother and father, even though you didn't honor them. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! What did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Let's turn over to Mark and see how he writes that. Very similar. Mark chapter 7. And actually 7, Mark's uh, version of it is a little bit uh, easier to read, actually. Beginning of verse 1. And then the Pharisees and some of his scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands. By the way, did you know that, that you were defying the tradition of the elders when you ate without washing your hands? Man, I'd be in big trouble. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, not that I'm not clean, I do wash my hands. But there's been times when I didn't. There's been times when mom said, go wash your hands, and I didn't. But anyways, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. There's that tradition of the elders. When they come to the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Interesting how he calls them hypocrites. He just, he doesn't mince words, does he? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other th such things you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father and mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father and his mother, making the word of God no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. When he called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone understand, there is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him. Those are the things 
that defile man. If anyone has ears to hear, ears to hear, let him hear. So what are we getting at here? What's the point of this? When one practices pouring or sprinkling, it's following a tradition of men. It's not the way it was done in the first century. Okay? What's the big deal? Who cares? Right? Well, by doing so, they are rendering the command of God to no effect. Just like Jesus was talking to the scribes and Pharisees here. Tradition of washing their hands before they ate, that was not a command of God. But yet, when it came to honoring your father and mother, they just completely rejected that. So what? You just give us some money and we'll take care of your mom and dad or whatever. You, you, they'll be taken care of, whatever, you know. These might be sincere folks, but they're not necessarily right. <clears throat> We're only right when we do the Father's will. Turn over to Matthew chapter 7. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, obeying the commands of God is how we respond to him. You say, well, that's, that's keeping the law. That's legalism. No. Bear with me. Turn over to John. We just had a big, long study of the Gospel of John, and we read some interesting verses that John wrote in his Gospel. Turn to chapter 14. I'm going to remind you of these. John chapter 14. Uh, let's begin verse 12. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Turn over to chapter 15 there real quick. Let's look at a verse there. Verse 9, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be, mold, may be made, uh, that your joy may be full. And turn over to 1 John. Give you a second to get over there. Chapter 5. Verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. How do we love God 
And by the way, what's the first command? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second, the same as the first, love your neighbor as yourself. By keeping commandments, we love God. You say, well, that's legalism, that's law. No, it's the law of love. It's the truth that's been revealed to us through his scripture. He's told us how to live. He's told us what he wants us to do. He's told us how to obey him. He's told us how to be saved. Wouldn't you think you want to do what he said to do and how he said to do it? So what we learned? What did we learn from this? The Greek word means immersion, not pouring or sprinkling. Those are different words. Sprinkling and pouring is inconsistent with the figures of speech that Paul uses in the Bible, which we read from Romans 6. There is no question that immersion was the mode of baptism in the Bible in the early church. No question. If someone tells you different, they're wrong. I want you to look at one more passage here kind of help us see it. Turn over to Acts chapter 8. And I'm sure you know where we're going here, but let's read it anyway. Beginning in verse 34. <clears throat> Acts 8:34. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth, beginning at this scripture. He's, he's reading from Isaiah, by the way. Preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being immersed? Now I know it says baptized, but I'm saying immersed. Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. I mean, immersed him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Isn't it interesting how the Lord made sure in Acts 8 we saw how it was done. He gave us a perfect example of how baptism, immersion, was to be done. Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. He baptized him, came up out of the water, raised to newness of life. What's the thing I've said before? What's the kicker about the gospel? Is it the fact that Jesus died for our sins? Of course, that's important. Absolutely, right? Yes, absolutely. But that's not really the kicker, is it? You remember how the disciples, when Jesus was crucified, they were scattering. They didn't know what to do. Peter's denying him. They're all confused. What's going on here? I thought this was the real deal. He's dead now. Whoopee. Just another shyster. Just another false prophet. But then they went to the tomb. Oh, he wasn't there. Wait a minute, what happened? He was raised from the dead. And that was what got him going. That's what gave him that kick 
to get out there and become the greatest missionary group that's ever been. He was raised from the dead. They saw him again. And here we have baptism where we're buried with him and raised again to newness of life, just like the Ethiopian eunuch, who went on his way rejoicing. Now, maybe you don't think that's a big deal. Okay, maybe so. Maybe that's your thing. But I'm telling you, are you obeying the God's command? Or are you obeying the traditions of men? And maybe that might need to be important to you. Hmm? Even if you don't think it's a big deal, maybe you might need to think about, I need to obey the command, the command of God rather than traditions of men. And pouring and sprinkling is a tradition of men. Men that didn't think it was a big deal, I guess. But that's how it came to be. It wasn't always that way. You see, if you've not been immersed for the remission of your sins as commanded by Jesus and his apostles, you're still in your sins. And if you've been poured on or sprinkled on, maybe you need to think about that. That might be something you need to consider. If you've not yet put on Christ and become his disciple by believing on him, repenting of your sins, turning away from sin, confessing his name, and being baptized, maybe that's something you need to do. And might as well do it today. Independence Day. Might as well be become a Christian day. I'm trying to think of a better word for it. I couldn't think of it. I'll start to say coronation day, but actually it's really not coronation day until the next life, right? That's when we get that crown of life. I guess you, but we've talked about the fact that when you become a Christian, you're beginning attorney, so in a way you could kind of say, I've got the crown of life, right? If you hadn't done that, need to do it. It's an immersion, folks. And it seems so simple to see, right? All right. Our time is up. Thanks for being here. Hope you have a wonderful day and a wonderful